From Quoted Studios, this is Blank on Blank. I'm Amy Drozdowska with our special series on icons of science and innovation, The Experimenters. Today, self-sight and deep-sea diving, George Washington Carver, Jacques Cousteau, and Oliver Sacks, three luminaries who had the imaginations and daring to go where none had gone before, overcoming indifference and bigotry, exploring the darkest depths of the ocean, and even challenging their own deepest assumptions, people who lived the very definition of scientific inquiry. First, I should say the uh, chief purpose of scientific training is to find truth. George Washington Carver survived slavery, poverty, rejection from colleges because of his race, and a raft of injustices that would crush most people's spirits, but not Carver's. Despite it all, he managed not only to get an education, but to become an educator himself, mastering, among other disciplines, botany, chemistry, mycology, and therapeutic massage. When I was in college at Ames, Iowa, I had charge of a football squad and a running squad. I was the professional rubber in those days. We called them rubbers. We called them masseurs now because it's more dignified and uh, sounds better. But uh, we called them uh, rubbers. That's George Washington Carver, recorded on a couple of surviving phonograph records from 1939. He's speaking with a man called Glenn Clark, a spiritual leader and huge admirer of Carver, who himself was deeply religious. We uncover this interview, capturing these few precious minutes of Carver's voice, one of the only quality audio recordings to survive all this time. By the time of this recording, the later years of his life and career firmly devoted to the service of others, Carver had focused on aiding poor African-American farmers of the South, and it headed the Agriculture Department at the famous Tuskegee Institute in Alabama. And of course, conducted his work developing over 300 uses for peanuts, including treating paralyzed polio patients with peanut oil massage therapy. My work with oils, I felt that we did not know enough about the efficacy of oils in the art of healing. So I started out to find as far as possible the value of uh, some of these oils so that in using these oils and liniments and pastes and powders and so forth, there seemed to be something lacking. When I came to Tuskegee, I had a chance of studying it further. Dr. Carver, do you consider yourself a chemist? We have to be very careful lest the ego comes in, a person that can bake a reasonably good cake or a reasonably good pan of biscuit can't go out and put up a shingle and say that they are good cooks, but they simply use the kettle or pan as a means to carry out the end. So I simply use the chemical laboratory to find certain things that I'm looking for. A laboratory is simply a place where we tear things to pieces. Sometimes we can get them together again if we want to put them together, and sometimes we can't. 
But nevertheless, we can pull things to pieces and get the truth that we are searching for. We can at least find out out of what certain things are made, and which gives us information to do other things with. Sometimes it is uh, wise not to look for too much appreciation. The main thing is to be sure you're right and go ahead, regardless of whether people appreciate it or whether they don't because in time, they will appreciate it. So simply be sure that you are on the right road. Dr. Carver, what is your standard by which you judge success or failure in life? That's a question that any young person would ask you. Well, that is a question that can't very well be answered by yes and no. I should say the uh, chief purpose of scientific training is to find truth. And whenever you find truth, you find the science. Ye shall know truth, and the truth shall make you free. There is nothing more destructive to development than ignorance. And ignorance is simply, I don't know. I should say this, that the further anyone gets away from themselves, the greater will be their success in life. You can't get very far in life if you don't get away from self. You know, self is a little bit of a thing. That little word, I, terrible eye disease, one of the worst eye diseases that was ever known. And then, too, a question naturally comes in, how can I be sure that I'm on the right road? I should simply say this, that in all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Now, you must learn to look to him for direction, and then follow, and you'll never go wrong. Like George Washington Carver, Jacques Cousteau paved his own path of scientific service. He followed his passion to both protect and better understand our world, particularly the world under the waves. The underwater archaeologist, deep-sea explorer, and documentary filmmaker dedicated his energies to the conservation of the seas he knew so well, and his long-running television series broadcast his passion to viewers around the world, cementing his own fame and that of his cause. Uh, there's another reason for Captain Jacques Cousteau to visit with us today. In the archives of WGN Radio, we found this 1978 interview with Cousteau by longtime Chicago radio personality Roy Leonard. It's a short conversation, but it captures Cousteau's charisma, his sense of fun, and his unwavering dedication. Cousteau was by then an old man by many standards. 
but he sure didn't act like it. Will you actively participate in diving yourself? I was there three days ago. Yes, I do dive. You, you are an amazing man. You are now Why? 65? 65, yes. You are as trim and uh, healthy looking as a <coughs> That's human That's something being. I don't understand. I don't see any difference between uh, the capability uh, that I enjoy now and the ones I enjoyed 20 years ago. I don't see any difference. So I don't understand these questions. heard the great news uh, a few weeks ago that you and your crew and the Calypso and all sorts of gear were going to try to find the lost continent of Atlantis. It, this is not just mythological, there really is something to look for? Well, once more, uh, our intentions have been slightly changed in the announcement because, of course, we're not looking for the lost continent of Atlantis at all because I don't think there was a lost continent of Atlantis. But there certainly was something at the origin of the legend, and that's what we are investigating. Well, what leads but you to believe you will find something there? I did not say that I would find something. Oh. I would say that my inquiry would tell the truth about it. I think this is a major subject for the public to know the truth about, because we're reading so many contradictory news. The Atlantis is found in, uh, in the Atlantic, in the Pacific, in the North Sea, in, uh, in the Sahara, I don't know where. So uh, uh, we are going to investigate every single one of these hypotheses, and we'll tell you what we think is the truth about it. Unfortunately, Captain, if you didn't know it, I better tell you, but that motion picture Jaws opens no. on the continent this week. There have been many killings of the great white shark by man because of the movie. Yeah, the great white shark is a rare animal, almost an endangered species. So uh, instead of being frightened by great white sharks, we should protect them. And uh, what, can we wh do? what we can do is to protest against these killings as strong as we can and eventually to go and uh, say to the fishermen, aren't you ashamed of yourself? The Cousteau Society is a not-for-profit organization, is it not? Uh, yes, sir, of uh, course. Because I read your financial statement. Yeah, sure. In fact, you, you're not in the black <laughs> by any means. <coughs> the Cousteau Society is uh, dedicated to uh, improving our life and the uh, perspectives of life of our children and grandchildren by protecting the water system of this planet by all means. It intends to achieve these goals by using uh, all the communication methods possible, television, film. Another one of the ABC specials, The Undersea World of Jacques Cousteau, is about to be seen on television. We're starting our ninth season. That is an amazing record for Because this. we produced four films a year, and uh, this uh, will complete the series to 36. Three <laughs> dozen. This is amazing. Uh, what we're doing really is the beginning of a big, strong, long, difficult fight. And we need the support of all our members, a very close support. What is a day on the Calypso like for the crew? Uh, an average day when you're, well, what you will be doing? I, the day starts in the evening. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'll, that's a good place to start. <laughs> day starts in the evening when... Uh, around the dinner table, we all discuss about the program of the next day. If the plan is uh, appealing enough, then maybe we will open a bottle of cognac and carry on a little longer the evening. Then the next morning, very early, we're all on deck. Everybody knows what he has to do, and the thing unrolls itself like a smooth, well-oiled machine. And the divers go one after row in row, doing their job. Then we find ourselves back in the dinner table in the evening for the next day.
have, it sounds delightful. Do you have divers from the world over who would like to become part of the crew of the Calypso? Oh, yes. We receive a great number of applications. Unfortunately, the turnover is very slow. People stay with us. We have very rarely an opportunity for a new diver to be wedged in. I can easily see, I think, why those who associate themselves with Jacques Cousteau would want to make it a life's work. You have made it your life's work. Yes. And uh, to you, we offer uh, thanks. From exploring and understanding the realm under the sea, let's move on now to our final selection from the archives someone who dedicated his career to exploring and understanding another realm, our own minds, neurologist, anthropologist, and writer, Oliver Sacks. In his writings, he explored the unexpected outcomes of the various ways our minds can misfire and what it means about how our brain works and who, in fact, we humans are. Sacks was fascinated, for instance, in who we become when we can't see. I had had a sort of haunting memory of an H.G. Wells story called The Country of the Blind, in which a lost traveler in South America blunders into a, an isolated mountain valley and finds a whole community of blind people, people who have been blind for three centuries and who have lost the very concept of sight and light, and who in fact regard him as demented or hallucinated and having peculiar ideas produced by these pathologies in the face, which he calls eyes. This is Oliver Sacks speaking back in 1996 with Henry Tischler for the WGBH Boston Public Radio book show, Cover to Cover. Dr. Oliver Sacks is a pioneer of charting the landscape of the mind. Neurologist, anthropologist, best-selling author, Sachs has reshaped our understanding of the brain's resilience and adaptive powers. I'm very interested in how people adapt to extremes, to the neurological extremes imposed by an illness, but sometimes, say, to other extremes. I've been fascinated by total color blindness or achromatopsia in which the person only sees, if you want, in shades of black and white or shades of gray, that there existed people who had never seen color and had no concept of color. Islands and mountain valleys, isolated places, tend to concentrate rare genetic disorders. And so I thought possibly there is a valley of the color blind, uh, an island. In 93, I went along to Guam. On some impulse, I asked my colleague whether he knew of any islands of the colorblind. And to my astonishment, he said, yes, there is one. He said, the little island of Pinkalap, where a tenth of the population have it, and a third of the population are carriers of the genetic defect which gives rise to it. I felt I had to go. In the H.G. Wells story, the traveler regards himself as the norm and a superior, and in fact he finds that the people in the village are so well adapted to their condition that he is the one who blunders and makes mistakes and is regarded as abnormal. And I certainly sometimes have the feeling that the achromatopes felt that we so-called normals wasted a lot of time talking about color, referring to color, paying attention to something which, which for them was non-existent, and which they could only imagine as trivial. 
I think the tables were turned a little bit. There was a little episode which uh, occurred within minutes of us arriving on the island when we rather, perhaps contemptuously, said, how can you folk tell when a banana's ripe? You can't distinguish green from yellow. The answer was to bring us a banana, which was a bright green banana, as it happened, and we felt this was an immediate illustration of their helplessness and their hopelessness until we tried the banana and it was perfectly ripe. And they said, you see, you would have called this unripe because you went by colour. We went by texture, smell, feel, knowledge. They said, you're narrow-minded. You just used colour as a criterion. We used everything. I guess the message that's sort of coming through in this discussion here is that we do stigmatise people. People do have various problems that put them in isolation with others but that as soon as there is a community that seems to form around these issues, that the rules start to change. Yes, I think there is a sort of a critical level, so that if a tenth or a quarter of the population have some condition, it, it has to be accepted as, as a legitimate form of life and won't be marginalised and sometimes won't even be noticed. Thing that I, I read about was quite interesting. You went to a convention of people with Tourette's syndrome? Oh, I, I think another experience, which was uh, also with one of these conventions, which took place in a sort of Tourettic hotel. I say a Tourettic hotel because the owner of the, of the hotel and his daughter had Tourette's. There was a lot of understanding and liberty given to people with Tourette's. And when I went back to my room in the evening, I heard sort of, sort of howls and knockings and strange noises all around me. And I could be alone in the desert, and I, and I wouldn't do this. But somehow, with everyone else doing it around me, suddenly I, I felt I could do the same. And I, I sort of joined them and yelled and screamed and banged without um, really just in a state of license. Although, although I think it did have a, a certain effect of emotional catharsis. The attention that you've received because of your Awakenings book and then the film that was based on your book, what about that attention that you've received? I think I was already, so to speak, well into middle age before it happened, and so I, I think I probably remained essentially the same sort of rather inquisitive and shy and stubborn person. But all sorts of things come my way now, and I have a sort of freedom to follow them. On the other hand, I feel frightened by the responsibility, <laughs> and occasionally everything gets too much for me, and then I do what I've just done, which is I take off for another island. I've just come back from Curacao, and there I did nothing but swim and dive and sort of completely forgot patience and neurology and everything else. That was Oliver Sacks, speaking with Henry Tischler in a 1996 conversation we found from the WGBH Boston Public Radio Book Show, cover to cover. Thanks to them, as well as to WGN Radio and the Roy Leonard Audio Archive in Chicago for their help with the Jacques Cousteau interview. And also to George Washington Carver biographer Peter D. Bouchard and the George Washington Carver National Monument for working with us on bringing these interviews back to life. 
This episode is part of our Science and Innovation series, The Experimenters. Support comes from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More information on Sloan at sloan.org. Thanks also to PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, for helping make this all happen. Be sure to watch the animated versions of this episode on our website, blankonblank.org. David Gerlach is the executive producer of Blank on Blank. This episode was produced by me, Amy Drozdowska, along with David. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and learn just what we're uncovering lately in the archives. Thank you.